This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. M. William Steele, Professor Emeritus at the International Christian University. Dr. Steele is the author of Apocalypse Now, an alternate view of the Bakumatsu years in the Meiji at 150 digital teaching resource, as well as Alternative Narratives in Modern Japanese History, published by Rutledge Curzon in 2003. Dr. Steele, thank you so much for talking with me today. And thank you. And thank you for allowing me to be part of the UBC Meiji 150 project. Well, you wrote for us this great visual essay, which I thought was a a great encapsulation of your research, which has particularly been looking at bottom-up movements. So often the narratives we get about Meiji Restoration in particular, but modern Japanese history more broadly, is this really top-down history of talking about things happening at the state level. But in your research, you focused on the ground level and certainly that bottom-up aspect. So could you tell us more about your research? Why is it that you focused on this bottom-up aspect? And what do we learn differently about modern Japanese history when we look at these alternative narratives? Thank you, Young. In that essay that I prepared for the Meiji 150 project, I called it Apocalypse Now. I tried to find out how people at that time, the so-called Bakumatsu years, between 1853 and 1868, how they understood what was happening around them. And I've always been interested in different views. You know, historians usually look back at the Bakumatsu years, uh, now 150 years ago. You know, we know what happened, and we know what happened afterwards. But how did people at that time think about it? Of course, those people didn't know they were living in the Bakumatsu years. The word Bakumatsu didn't exist, of course. And so I think I began my interest in looking at the non-elites, looking at the people with no names, this kind of social history approach. I began it almost 50 years ago, actually around Meiji 168, when I started my graduate studies. I was working with uh, Albert Craig, who is a specialist on Choshu. Those were, of course, the winners of the Meiji Restoration. And being somewhat contrary in personality, I said, well, I'd like to study the losers, <laughs> the, the people who lost out. And I worked on Katsukaishu, who was, in effect, the commander-in-chief of the Tokugawa military forces in 1868 and negotiated the surrender of Edo Castle to Saigo Takamori. He was a specialist in naval affairs. Uh, he'd sailed the first Japanese warship, the Kanin Maru, across Yokohama to San Francisco in 1860. And it was a kind of an interesting character through the 1860s. Uh, but then he was charged with the, the duty of somehow negotiating the surrender and, and actually negotiating the collapse of the, uh, the Tokugawa regime. So that was my PhD thesis. But uh, ever since then, I've been, lo- I've been kind of concerned with the underside, social history, the history of ordinary people. And, uh, and instead of the winners, the losers, Instead of the rich and the powerful, the weak and the poor and the impoverished, instead of the people at the center, I've been concerned with people at the periphery. I've also been very interested in local history. Basically, my approach is that even losers make history. I say that not only I'm interested in people from the bottom-up point of view, but as I said uh, in that visual essay, I did it, how people at that time experience what we now call history. 
people at that time didn't know that their government was about to fall apart and replaced by an imperial regime. But they did know that something was wrong. And probably somewhere around the time 1853, when the coming of Commodore Perry and the foreign threat, things seemed to be getting worse and worse. From the commoners' point of view, or from the people at that time, there didn't seem to be any neat narrative, no sense of an inevitable course of events. And in that essay, I used one print issued in the middle of 1868, which kind of took the form of a chronology of the last 15 years. It was broken up into something like 15 boxes. Uh, it's almost like a board game, a sugoroku, a sort of, a, you know, there's a, uh, a box for 1853, which had a picture of Commodore Perry's black ship, and then 54, 55, and so forth, all the way up to 1868, which had a picture of the, uh, each, each box had an illustration of something, a central event of that year. And the last one was the battle at Ueno Hill, the defeat of the Shogitai in the fifth month of 1868. But I was really intrigued that there wasn't a neat narrative, and certainly there was no narrative of imperial loyalism or of nationalism or foreign response and so forth. It really was, and there was kind of a hodgepodge of events. There, some were political, some were economic, some were religious, some were, and there was a lot of natural disasters that say, well, this is how kind of this is how common people remembered the history. And that was the year of the flood. That was the year of the fire. That was the year of the great epidemic. And that led me also to, uh, you know, use your digital resources at UBC. There was this, this marvelous collection of disaster prints in the Bakamatsu. And actually, I was kind of working on this print before I discovered that. And that, ah, Naruhodo, this is great. I can use this. And, and, and I really use that and other of those uh, digital resources. It's just a great benefit to, to scholars and people interested in the period before and after the major restoration. And you were talking about how you're interested in local history and particularly in peripheral history and looking at some of these power struggles between the center and the periphery. And one of the chapters in your book, Alternate Narratives in Modern Japanese History, that I've always found uh, so instructive is this uh, article and then chapter Edo in 1868, mm -hmm. looking at the kind of commoner response to the major restoration. And one of the things I found so powerful in that chapter was that even at the center, we see that these policies aren't being received very well. Yeah, that was also um, what I was interested in there is, is, again, the whole story of one year between the first month of 1868 to the 12th month and how it, then ordinary people in Edo uh, understood what was happening. And that one year is usually, you know, the turning point to modern Japan, the, the, the end of the old regime, the beginning of a new regime, imperial, and it's, it's sort of kind of a triumphant story. But when I looked at the experience of commoners, of, of Edoko, the people of Edo, it's a very different narrative. And it certainly challenges any notion of the heroic story of a bloodless surrender of Edo Castle or the renaming of the era names from Keio to Meiji, or the name from Edo to Tokyo, and the triumphant entry of the emperor into the new imperial capital. And what I did in that thing is I used a lot of political cartoons issued at that time in the 1868. It's almost like social media at the time, because who made them, uh, who bought them, all of this is sort of kind of unknown, but there was just the flooded uh, with sort of visual materials in the form of kind of, like kind of cartoons uh, that satirized and made fun of the events that were taking place around the time. 
you know, sometimes with a little bit of uh, humor, someone with a little bit of news that would titillating news and so forth. But they often helped me and, and other scholars understand, you know, this sort of bottom-up view. So I use that as, a, as a, the main resource. And what I found there, for the commoners anyway, the Meiji Restoration or the what happened in 1868 was by no means a happy event. I remember this word that Queen Elizabeth used a few years ago, anus horribles, a sort of a horrible year that was filled with uh, confusion and fire and war and death and bloodshed and impoverishment and, and insecurity, depression. During that year, the population of Edo decreased by half. A lot of people fled the city. Of course, the rich and if you merchants, many and the daimyo left. But uh, the city is just really severely depopulated and impoverished. In many cases, falling apart. Perhaps for the Edo commoners, the central event was the fifteenth day of the fifth month, which actually turns out in the Western calendar to be July the fourth, eighteen sixty-eight. The attack on the shogitai, and yes, it gave the imperial government uncontested control over the city. But uh, at the same time, it, it resulted in a big fire. Then the northeastern uh, sections of Edo burned. There was lots of life uh, lost and property destruction and so forth. And it was a result of a, a lot of just bloody warfare in the center of Edo. The popular cartoon at that time uh, was one that was called Oyama no Taisho, the sort of king of the mountain. And it showed a number of children playing a war game, which is called, you know, I'm going to be king of the mountain and, and I'm up on top of a mountain. I win and you and everybody you keep pushing other people who try to kind of take your place down. This depicted a scene using children in which Satsuma and Choshu, who were the leaders of the anti-Bakru faction, and who succeeded in taking over, leading the, you know, on behalf, so-called behalf of the young child emperor. Here they are, Satsuma and Choshu, portrayed as children, holding up the baby emperor Meiji on top of the mountain and saying, you know, here we are now king of the mountain. But other boy soldiers continue to fight. Some were in retreat. And then you can look at the clothes, the sort of symbols on the clothes, and you can tell who's who and who's, who's doing what here. And particularly some of the daimyo from the northeastern part of Japan, like Aizu and uh, Sendai and others up in, in the northern, northeastern part of Japan, were still fighting hard. For the viewers of that print, the Edoko, this scene seems like a cute picture of boys having fun fighting or kind of playing, playing war games, but actually immediately recalled the roar of cannons and the barrage of rifle shots, uh, the, the fire that engulfed the, nor the northeastern part of Tokyo. And it was really a reminder of what they had experienced as Edo in really decline and war and under siege. Sometimes people look at these cartoons and say, oh, this is, a, this is a cute, this is sort of a, an evidence of some children's games. And they are kind of cute. But for people at that time, these weren't intended for bring it home to your child and, and look at it and have fun ever. They were really for adults. They were depicting children at war, but it was a sort of stand-in or a depiction of real war, of real blood and real death and real suffering and real violence that people were experiencing at that time. For the people in Edo and in the, in the immediate environs of Edo, this year was one of bloodshed, suffering, destruction, dislocation, impoverishment. That was what the, you know, that's, that was their experience. And, and then we've kind of forgotten that. 
Yes, the Meiji Restoration was a supremely important event in modern Japanese history, and it starts the beginning of a unified nation-state, etc., etc. But it wasn't a happy time by any means for the common people. Speaking of these satirical political cartoons, one that I use in my own class quite a lot when I'm talking about this topic is the one depicting the Battle of Toba Fushimi mm-hmm. as oh, yes. a battle of arts. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, uh, I use that myself too. Quite That particular one, actually, the pro-imperial side has the biggest bag of fart that they can use. You can imagine it's their secret weapon. Actually, they 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 did have a superior military power, and the, the joke, of course, is that farting power is heidoku, and military power is heidoku. So they, they they really sound uh, they, they 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 there's a nice joke there. And the other side, the Tokugawa side, they're trying really hard, but they just don't have the stuff. <laughs> And then we can look at these prints as evidence of Edo disinclination towards the new Meiji government coming in. And I mean, there was also a number of jokes circulating at the time about how these country bumpkin samurai come in from the West and, you know, they talk about Meiji, but all we read is Osamaru Mei, like, you know, we will not be governed by anybody. But the Meiji government does come in and they're able to somewhat pacify the populace, aren't they, by basically hosting a giant drinking party? Well, yes. At the end of the year, I don't know whose idea that was. Uh, it certainly worked at least uh, for people who had, as I said, gone through this year and uh, looking for some sense of hope, some sense that of, of um, you know, maybe the, end, the year is going to end up well and we'll have a, a better future from the next year. The government held a, a three-day festival, basically. The Osake was given out to the entire city of Edo. The various board leaders from sections of the city, now called Tokyo, uh, had to come to the imperial palace, which was in, pretty much in ruins, actually, still. But they had to come to where the emperor was and receive the sake, bow down to the emperor, and then take it back to their respective districts in the city, and there was three days holidays. Yes, I think it actually did work. It sort of almost created a sort of a, a new covenant between the residents of now Tokyo and the new government of the emperor. But uh, it wasn't total. The people of Edo would w- want better conditions, better times, and uh, they didn't come immediately. We kind of uh, think that, well, after the major restoration is that uh, then Tokyo blossoms and so forth. But actually, the Edo population didn't really recover to its strength that it was before 1868 till the 1880s. And the city of Edo for many years afterwards is in still a lot of, a lot of empty lands. They're all former daimyo lands and former lands are just kind of left either fallow or turned into mulberry fields. The city didn't immediately restore a lot of the greatness. And also commoners are, the Edo people were still a little bit hesitant you know, who are these people? They, they are, they sort of, you said, kind of country bumpkins. One of those cartoons talks about, you know, these guests here, they're nagashiri, they're, they've stayed too long. We've got to sweep them out. Uh, so there was still a lot of, of resistance. And certainly even the name Edo persisted you know, well into the 1870s. Uh, we'll say, well, our, this, our name is our city is, isn't Tokyo. We're still, you know, and then, uh, so they, they persisted that. And then there's that wonderful book by Ogi Shinzo called uh, Tokei Jirai, 
instead of Tokyo Jidai, it's Tokei. It's sort of an intermediate time, an era of intermediacy in which there's still a lot of Edo left and a lot of pro-Edo sentiments left well into the 1880s and so forth. So I think it's not as suddenly a sudden kind of conversion as we might sometimes be led to believe by the textbooks. Is it too quick to assume then that the people of Edo would have preferred to stay under the Tokugawa rule, or, or was it just necessarily antipathy towards any sort of power? I mean, was this really anti-Meiji, pro-Tokugawa, or is that too simple? Mm, I think it's a bit too simple. Uh, I think that uh, anybody who could provide them with the peace and the stability and the order on which they basically could continue their lives and continue to carry out their work without a hindrance and so forth, that having that uh, sort of a, just peace, stability, order uh, was what they really wanted. And if the emperor could provide that, good. Though there is, again, as you know, as you know there's a, a lot of residual uh, sympathy toward the Tokugawa family. I looked at uh, and edited, actually, the Clara's Diary, a diary of an American young girl who was in Japan from 1875 for 10 years and eventually marries. And she was 15 years at that time. She kept a very interesting diary. In her records, a lot of gossip at that time. She heard all oh, of the people, they really, you know, they really loved the Tokugawa. At the time of the Satsuma Rebellion, they said, I had a lot of gossip. People say that they're, they're secretly hoping that Saigo will win. And uh, also at that time, 1877, was the funeral of Kazunomiya. And uh, she was one of the women of the castle, uh, originally uh, the half-sister of the emperor Komei. And so she's kind of the aunt of the emperor, but she was actually married to the Tokugawa family and served also as a mediating force between the old government and the new government in 1868. Still one of the visual personalities of the Edo period. She died in 1877, and there was this massive funeral and a lot of sympathy. Of course, she died young, but uh, and Clara also uh, writes about that funeral and about the great popular sympathy toward her and to the former Tokugawa family. When talking about these bottom-up movements, and especially in the Bakamatsu period, now one of the things that comes up a lot is, say, the age and Ica, hysterical dancing in the streets mm-hmm. as a portent of something to come. And I, I'm thinking of, say, for example, George Wilson's work, questioning whether or not there was an amount of agency from these bottom-up movements. What do you think about this? Did the commoners play a role in the restoration? And is this antipathy towards the restoration that we see in the prince, for example, evidence of that? Mm, You know, some rich merchants gave money to the Tokugawa side, but they also gave money to the, (laughs) they're hedging their bets to the other side. Uh, And uh, for when you go down to the common people, I think they really did get caught up in that Ajanaika movement. But as we look back at that uh, essay I wrote on the Bakamatsu years, there's just a series of terrible events, one after another. Uh, fires and epidemics, and uh, then there's on top of that, then there's the barbarians, and then there's the civil war, and there's rising prices. Uh, it's a sort of, um, what's next? What can it possibly be? Isn't there any hope at all in this world? And I don't think Ajanaika is so much more of a, you know, let's, let's tear the government down and make a new one. Uh, it's just that sort of um, expression of, can we take anything more? You know, it's so terrible. 
So I don't really see the the commoners playing a sort of agency or sort of a a, a clearly defined war. Uh, I think instead it sort of uh, reflects the sort of almost apocalyptic or millenarian or sort of somehow hopes that there will there will be some salvation sometime. But on the other hand, probably realizing ah oh, maybe we really are at a dead end. This is the end. So you mentioned that one of the things you wanted to research was the say the losers of the restoration. So you're looking at Katsukaishu and and some of the people of the local areas how they were reacting to these things that were happening. And then at the same time there are those who criticize the new Bunmei Kaika movement and some of the westernization introduced yeah. by the Meiji government. I understand you've been working on that as well. So could you give us a few examples of people who, you know, even if they weren't necessarily critical of the government, were critical of westernization? Yeah, that's good because you know, as I say, I was interested in Katsukaishu and Turton at the top, and then interested in the losers. And I say it was almost responding to my uh, thesis advisor, who was looking at the at the winners at that time. I also wanted to take on the Kaika movement, civilization, Westernization, and I've been focusing a lot on anti-Westernization and anti modernity or anti-Western things and ideas in the early Meiji period, because, again, the story is all of a sudden that uh, after the Meiji Restoration, Japan industrialized and militarized and Westernized, and people are wearing, eating beef and wearing Western clothes, and, and it's, it's just too quick. It happened, and it, but in only a small sections, and yet there was also a great deal of resistance to those things from the outside. You know, I have a great deal of respect for Fukuzawa Yukichi. He's the westernizer of Japan. He's written all sorts of books, including one called Encouragement of Learning, that is, Encouragement of Western Learning, Gakumon Susume. Uh, he's a heroic modernizer. But I've also discovered that there were many people uh, at the same time in the early 1870s or through the 1870s who rejected his worldview and who argued against the introduction of Western things. One of them was a man named Sada Kaiseki. Again, we don't know his name. We know Fukuzawa. He's a very famous person. But these other people have been almost kind of erased from history. Sada Kaiseki uh, was particularly concerned about the introduction of Western things. And particularly, he took his aim at Western lamps. He said that the gas lamps and kerosene lamps, which were a sort of a symbol of the new enlightened age, he said they were going to lead to national collapse. He wrote an essay called Rampu Bokokuron, Lamps Will Destroy the Country. The idea was uh, fairly economic almost. He says, well, you know, we have our own lamps. The fuel is either rapeseed oil or fish oil. We produce the fuel. It produces a light. This is our light, you know, our lamps. Why do we need kerosene lamps? We have to import the fuel. And not only that, that those lamps are so bright uh, that they're going to turn our whole country into an age of, of a people who are all wearing spectacles and glasses. We'll have a lot of eye disease and so forth. But Sada Kaisiki was also a critic of the brick town that, that you wrote about in your visual essay. He said that Japan has its own Bumei Kaika and doesn't need the Bumei Kaika from the West. And he published a, a, you know, a parody ranking of fools. And this took the form of a sumo banske, sort of a, a, a poster in, in the rank who are the highest ranking, who are the strongest, and who are the weakest, and so forth, and, and so forth. 
and he published this uh, parody ranking of fools. And the greatest fools were those who discarded things Japanese at great expense and, and imported Western things. You know, why would people need Western pen and paper? We've got our own fude, our own brushes, and we have some of the best paper in the world. Why would we drink that stuff that looks like horse piss? You know, when we can drink the, and we have our own sake, which is in the best in the world and so forth. You know, I mentioned this to you before. There was a, a man of Maegashira rank who was the fool who tore down his wooden house and erected one made of brick. Then there's another critic, again, another person who's often forgotten from the textbooks. Uh, this is a man named Monte Oga. And he was opposed to Western ideas, you know, freedom or equality, things like that. New, new sorts of ideas that are coming in from the Western are very much part of the Westernization process, especially Fukuzawa. And he actually took direct aim at Fukuzawa and published a parody of Fukuzawa's Gakumon no Susume, Encouragement of Learning. Monte Oga's book was called Gakumon Suzume, The Sparrows Before the Gates of Learning. And his sparrows took aim at the central message of Fukuzawa's book. That was in you know, equality. You know, heaven doesn't create any person above or below. Uh, all people are born equal. Well, Monte and his sparrows took exception. Heaven does, in fact, create some people above and some people's below. So look around you. Uh, where is there any evidence of equality? <laughs> and he was kind of making a sort of a very common sense argument at that time. And a lot of people agreed. I've been looking at those sort of anti-modernity, anti-Western, uh, and, 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 and see the 1870s as a sort of a in-between time, a sort of hybridity that, yes, uh, the early Meiji years uh, did see Westernization, but not at any rapid pace. There was a lot of contest between the old and the new, a lot of friction, a lot of competition. We get the sense that people started eating beef, you know, right away. But in fact, beef eater was more myth than reality. And it wasn't really until the early 20th century that any substantial amount of meat was entered into the diet of ordinary Japanese. It really does remind me, speaking of these satirical prints again, there's a print from the 1880s called the Kaika Injun. In the smoke of the locomotive, there's all the competition between the new imported items and the old items. Yeah, I like that print very much. It shows you that sense of contest. And sometimes, you know, the old things are on top. You know, there's the kind of the, to the Western umbrella against the old Japanese wagasa, you know, and the, the shoes versus the zori. And all sorts of little struggles that's going on in there. And I like that image of a, a period of contest or a struggle between these uh, and friction between the in, old and new. And the victory isn't complete and maybe is still even today not complete. <laughs> you know, the major restoration, it's an important turning point. But if there's any sort of argument between, you know, continuity or a rapid change, I'm, I'm on the continuity side. Uh, it's a turning point, but I see a lot of continuity. I saw a lot of mm, hybridity, kind of joining together and a lot of grafting together of the old and the new. But I'm rather suspicious of these views that uh, this is sudden success story of, of Meiji. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. 
Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.